1: Previously on Tulsa's Buried
2: Truth. So it's, it's Monday, May 30th, 1921. Dick Rowland, 19 year old black boy, worked as a Shushan uh, boy downtown. And he walks over to the Drexel building on that morning, boards the elevator. The elevator is being operated manually by Sarah Page. Dick Rowland bumped into Sarah Page. Sarah Page began to scream. The elevator landed back in the lobby. Dick Rowland, frightened, ran from the elevator.
1: Dick Rowland is arrested and locked up at the city courthouse. He's accused of assaulting a white girl. Outside, an angry mob of white men has gathered, hell-bent on revenge. Before long, a group of armed Black men arrive to protect the teen.
2: They thought he was going to be lynched. There were rumors to that effect.
1: And then a shot rings out. I'm Sunny Hostin. This is episode two of Tulsa's Buried Truth. Here's ABC's Steve Osunsami.
3: All hell is breaking loose outside the courthouse in downtown Tulsa. Depending on who you ask, there are different stories about who fired the first shot. But by most accounts, the bullet that starts the bleeding is a warning shot in the air by one of the white gunmen. Historian Hannibal Johnson tells a slightly different story.
2: Words were exchanged between the large white group and the small black group. A white man tried to take a black man's gun. The gun discharged and chaos ensued from there. The violence lasted.
3: One fact everyone agrees on, the black men from Greenwood are wildly outnumbered. Thousands of hostile white men, some
2: deputized by local law enforcement, invaded. The
3: next 16 hours would be filled with gunfire. Some of the white men are seen running to a nearby airfield with their guns, where they take to the skies.
2: We know that there were planes that flew over the Greenwood community during the massacre. It's undisputed. We know that there were private planes. We know that at least one person in one of the planes strafed the community with bullets.
3: The bullets start raining down on Greenwood. Many of the black families are asleep inside their
2: homes. And we have a number of very credible eyewitnesses who say that the planes dropped incendiary devices on the community, bombs.
3: A famous civil engineer by the name of W.R. Hallway was at a local theater watching a movie when all of a sudden...
0: And right in the middle of the theater program, somebody came in and shouted, fight, fight.
3: He uses a racial slur
0: here. We went out the door and looked across the street, and here was Yonkman's drugstore with these big pillars. There were two big pillars there at the entrance. And we got over behind them and just got there when a the Negro ran out of the alley across the street. And the minute his head showed outside, somebody shot him. It's, uh, he
3: described the scene to a historian in 1974. He says there was no police, no help on the way, and no one was ever
0: coming. I wouldn't let an ambulance pick him up. We stood there for about a half an hour, wasn't it? He wasn't quite dead, but he was
3: about to die. It may come as a surprise, but in 1921, Tulsa actually had a black police officer who lived in Greenwood. His name was Barney Cleaver, and witnesses say he was out trying to get the white men with guns to turn around. But the mob wasn't trying to hear it from a black sheriff's deputy. They marched on. The fight continues through the night, and the mob starts chasing the black men away from the courthouse. It becomes a fight to the death that travels north from downtown, across the railroad tracks, and into Greenwood. Back on the white side of Tulsa, the rumors are spreading fast. There's lots of talk about black folks rioting, and that gets more of the white men with guns out of their homes and into Greenwood. They showed no mercy. There are plenty of stories of gunmen firing into black homes and businesses and setting them on fire. When their victims ran outside, they would shoot them dead.
4: But a man was shot near us. My dad stopped to put him on a, on a porch, and we got pounded.
3: The fire continued to grow. Survivors say the smoke was so thick it was hard to breathe. The story is that the firefighters who came to put out the first flames were being shot at by the mob, so they decided to give up and let it all burn. They
2: called me about a block away from, four blocks away from home. Line me up.
3: That's William D. Williams. He was just 16 at the time, and that day, he ran into a white man with a gun.
2: I was walking down the alley, running down there, and ran right into a guy with
3: a shotgun. All right, put him around there. <laughs> he shares a painful truth that I've now heard several times and even found in an official report. That there were soldiers in the National Guard who were working with the mob. More than 100 white soldiers were sent by the governor who declared martial law. They were supposed to quote, restore order, but instead they started rounding up black families, forcing them from their homes and making it a whole lot easier for the attackers to loot and burn.
5: If you're looking at the pictures, they were marching a conquered people through the center of town.
3: Mark Carlson is a historian at the University of Tulsa. He spoke to us from outside a building where the troops rounded up black people during the massacre. He's white and is a self-described history hunter. He spent the past several years finding lost photos that show what happened here.
5: Um, I don't know that it was in really thought out intentional cultural humiliation, but I'm fairly sure that's exactly what's going on. It's in the, you can see it in the faces in
3: the pictures. The images are heartbreaking. Groups of black men are dressed in nice suits and hats. You see their hands in the air and the white soldiers with their guns marching them through the streets. It's clear who the victims are in these photos, the black men with guns at their backs. And on the sidewalks watching the show, crowds of their white neighbors. Mark Carlson says the National Guard wasn't trying to help the citizens of Greenwood.
5: What the National Guard did was they started and went down Archer, street by street, block by block, and basically started pulling people out of their homes and out of their businesses. And there was a running gun battle through most of the night while they were trying to do this. But what that meant was that when sunrise came, there was nobody protecting the southern border of Greenwood. And so this mob swarms in. While some people may have been there to assist the National Guard, there were a large number of other people who were there for looting, killing, and burning.
3: Through these pictures, he says it becomes painfully clear that the terrorism here was just fine with the state.
5: It's one of the part, actually, the pictures of the marching the crowds are some of the hardest for me to look at because we can write off the looting and burning as being a small group of people just going nuts. Sure, this was not. This part was actually intentional on the part of the authorities to basically put these, put these people back in their place.
3: But you know, I should also point out that there were white families in Tulsa who were seeing all of this and felt it was wrong. Witnesses say that some of them drove into Greenwood to rescue some of their friends. And there are stories from white homeowners who were hiding their black housekeepers in their basements.
6: We could see
2: them burning the Negroes part of town. We we saw them burning it. It was just terrible.
3: All those shops and restaurants owned by black families that served black families, they were burned to the ground. Some estimates say hundreds of African Americans were killed. Hannibal Johnson says there were so many bodies, they had to pile them high on trucks, and they were hauled away never to be seen again.
2: By the time the dust settled, we think our best guesstimate is that some 100 to 300 people were killed, most of them Black. Hundreds more were injured. We know that at least 1,250 homes in the Black community were destroyed. We know that many Black folks were rounded up and taken to internment centers throughout the city, very much like people of Japanese ancestry were interned during World War II. An
3: internment center is a nice way of describing a place where human beings are treated like cattle. Photos from the time show these families being pushed into dirty hog and cow pens. The only way to leave was if a white person came and signed you out. And then you had to wear a card on your chest that showed your name, where you lived, and what white resident approved your release. In all, about 4,000 Black people became refugees in a city they helped build. Many of the families who were able to make it back to their homes found ashes instead.
2: And we know that many Black families spent days, weeks and months living in tent cities. set up
3: Johnson says the newspapers loved every bit of this. Remember now, the big papers like the Tulsa World and Tulsa Tribune were white owned and operated.
2: There was great hostility even after the devastation of the community from sources like one of the local newspapers, the Tulsa Tribune, published an editorial three days after the massacre, It Must Not Be Again.
3: You would think these words were about the violence, but that's not what the editorial was pointing to. When they wrote It Must Not Be Again, they were talking about Greenwood.
2: They said in the editorial exactly what they meant. Such a district as the old must never be allowed in Tulsa again. It was a cesspool of iniquity and corruption. And I I like to give voice to the exact language from the editorial, because that reflects uh, the thinking of a good number of the white leadership of the community at the time.
3: Let me underline that thinking a bit. They were calling Greenwood a cesspool of iniquity and corruption simply because it was Black, And it shouldn't be a big surprise given the times, but the white city leaders in Tulsa put all the blame for what happened on those who were killed and left homeless. There was actually a criminal investigation into the massacre, but it was by an all white grand jury. No white residents were ever charged in the killings or the fires. The only people who faced criminal charges in the massacre were a few of the black business owners
2: So I'd give you one, just one example. J.B. Stratford was a wealthy lawyer who had the Stratford Hotel, one of several boutique hotels in the Greenwood community in the early teens and 20s, probably the premier hotel in the Greenwood district.
3: Mr. Stratford was one of the most highly respected business owners and civic leaders in Greenwood.
2: He was one of the black men indicted for inciting the riot in 1921. He fled to Chicago.
3: These men were wrongly accused of starting a riot, charges they would fight for decades before finally beating. In fact, Mr. Stratford wasn't formally cleared until 1996, 60 years after he died. The scale of the inhumanity here is shocking. By some accounts, 300 citizens were executed 35 blocks of homes and businesses were burned, and yet no one white would ever answer for
2: anything. The grand jury, the mayor, chamber of commerce, the city commission, they basically all considered what happened a Negro uprising, to use their words, which says to me, these black folks got too uppity, they got what they deserved, case closed. that's essentially what happened in terms of accountability.
3: The people of Greenwood were failed, and not just by the courts. Their government failed to help them recover.
2: I don't know of any direct assistance from the city or the state that helped, helped victims.
3: There was no FEMA back then. No government relief agency like there was in New Orleans in 2005, after Hurricane Katrina came and drowned a majority Black city. And even if there were such a thing, they weren't going to come to the rescue of successful African Americans. News of what happened did make it onto the pages of a few major newspapers across the country. The New York Times was one, with a headline that said, Angered Whites Surround Negro Quarter and Set It on Fire. But you have to remember, across this country at the time, many people still saw Black Americans as second-class citizens who didn't even deserve the right to vote. In Hollywood movies, they thought nothing of using white actors in blackface. And in Washington, bills that would have outlawed the lynching of black Americans kept dying in the U.S. Senate. Tulsa was like Katrina in yet another way. The massacre put black Americans on the move. Families here ran to cities like Chicago, and many never came back. While it was hard to find many in white America who wanted to help, there is one group of people who came through right away.
2: Really, the savior in all this, in terms of helping the victims of the massacre, uh, by all accounts, was the Red Cross. The American Red Cross, by all accounts, did, did a wonderful job in providing healthcare, food, shelter, Before
3: Tulsa, the Red Cross only responded to natural disasters. But the man-made tragedy of Greenwood was too heartbreaking for them to ignore. They set up a makeshift hospital and school in North Tulsa. But by the end of July, two months after the massacre, the people who ran this city still had no real plans to help these families. There was more help pouring in from black townships across the country. You had Black America trying to take care of its own. Christy Williams is the great-granddaughter of survivors. She says they came back and rebuilt Black Wall Street.
4: I keep wondering, what was that spirit? What was that fire in them? And what it was is that this was supposed to be the promised land for a lot of Black people coming out of slavery, coming out of that, they were trying to escape lynchings. And this was a place for them to rebuild.
3: Hannibal Johnson says there was a great need for safe spaces for Black people. And that moved organizations like the NAACP to send money here.
2: It was important because this was a, a, a symbol of Black stick and resilience. And people recognize that. We can't let this community um, disappear. And so people were really helpful in terms of providing assistance when they could and, and as they could.
3: But rebuilding many of their homes and businesses wouldn't be easy.
2: The city made the fire code more onerous, where it, was, it would have been difficult for Black people to rebuild using these fireproof materials. So that all sorts of obstacles are put in their way.
3: But you know what they say about obstacles that an obstacle is just that. You can climb over it, go around it, dig under it, or just move it. And the Black people who rebuilt this community did all of that and more. Less than five years after the massacre, there were Black homes and businesses back in Greenwood. By the 1940s, the neighborhood known as Black Wall Street starts looking like its old self again. Look down the street, and you could see celebrities like boxer Joe Lewis enjoying a drink or two at a jazz cafe.
2: It just tells you uh, how well-known and well-developed the community was. It was known for, for, for music, for jazz, but also for just being a place where uh, Black people could, could enjoy the sort of luxuries that they were otherwise denied in, in majority communities.
3: Scott Ellsworth is a historian and a professor of African-American studies at the University of Michigan, but he was born and raised
7: in Tulsa. In some ways, it's amazing what happens. Um, If you'll go down Greenwood Avenue and you'll see these rebuilt buildings that were destroyed in 1921, you look at the dates on top and it's like 1923, 1922, 1924.
3: He says that slowly but surely, people got back to work.
7: Probably in the 1940s and 1950s, it's greater than before. You know, there's a very lively business community. Um, Lots of people own their own family businesses, movie theaters, restaurants, nightclubs, all of that. He
3: says when the law finally allows Black people to eat at white restaurants and shop at white dress stores, it's a surprising blow to Greenwood. There's an unfortunate irony here for black people, the integration of America was overdue, righteous, and necessary. People died trying to make it happen, but it was integration that closed the chapter on
7: proud black communities like Greenwood. And then the story of Greenwood is, is a story that happens to many African American commercial districts, which is a story of urban renewal, of changing economics. Um, when Tulsa finally desegregated, Oftentimes, African-American shoppers are going to get better deals going to white-owned businesses. And so all of the old captured economics, you know, is going to disappear.
3: So much was disappearing. So many of the black dollars that used to be spent here at home were being spent somewhere else. And the loss here wasn't just about money. You know, part of the beauty of places like Greenwood was the sense of community and loyalty. That goes away a bit when you could now buy your milk anywhere else. In the decades that followed, there were white universities all across the country that now had to open their doors to black students. This added to the decline here. Suddenly, the young black and gifted from Tulsa, Oklahoma were leaving, and many never came back. And then in the 70s, the government built a freeway through Tulsa. And guess where it went? Straight through the middle of Greenwood,
7: the coup de grace was the the building of uh, Interstate 244, where they took the uh, you know this huge eight-lane interstate and plowed it right through the heart of the Greenwood commercial district, and that just struck a blow to these surviving family institutions that they simply could not recover from again.
3: For the state of Oklahoma and the city of Tulsa, the new freeway was progress. But for the black people here who had rebuilt their pride and joy, the new concrete that the government poured over Greenwood was another heartbreak. It cut the neighborhood in half and wiped many of the historic homes and businesses off the map. To this day, the highway is hiding some of the scars from the massacre. But I wanted to go see what you could still find.
8: With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need and the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you'd do with an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, take a nap, read a book, or maybe show up for a friend? We often find ourselves wishing for more time, but the real question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The key to squeezing that special thing into your schedule is knowing what's truly important to you and making it a priority. That's where therapy comes in. It's not just about dealing with problems, it's about finding what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you've tried therapy, you know how beneficial it can be. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's a tool for learning positive coping skills, setting boundaries, and empowering yourself to be the best version of you. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part? You can switch therapists at any time at no additional charge. So, whether it's finding that extra hour for yourself or embarking on a journey of self-discovery, Therapy can be a game changer. Take the first step with BetterHelp and make your mental health a priority. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com reclaimed to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot reclaimed.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 2021,
3: 100 years after the massacre. And there are people across America and across Tulsa who are just learning what happened. Sounds hard to believe, but it's true.
8: And Ladies and gentlemen, for the flight deck, I'd like to walk aboard this morning on flight. Please.
3: I traveled to Greenwood because I needed to see the place for myself. It's our pleasure to welcome you to Tulsa where the local time is 1124. I land on a chilly morning and make my way to the corner of Greenwood and Archer, the heart of this historic black neighborhood. The buildings are built from that red brick you see in old Midwestern towns. And the one lonely block of what they still call Black Wall Street almost feels out of place. The corner is now overwhelmed by the tall apartment buildings and the construction cranes that surround the area like a giant steel crown. Frankly, I was expecting to feel a little more. So I have heard throughout my life a lot about Black Wall Street um, and the history here, but this is the first time I've seen it for myself. I remember feeling a lot differently when I turned a similar corner while visiting Germany many years ago. I was walking the streets of Berlin, and there's a church right in the heart of the city that looks pretty much like it did after it was bombed during the Second World War. Some of the brick is still black from the fires all these years later. It's a constant reminder to people there about the crimes against humanity that took place during the war. When you walk through Greenwood, there are very few reminders of the hundreds of black victims who died here. But you'll find the ones that are the most visible in the sidewalks on Greenwood Avenue. There are these small metal plates in the concrete that share the names of the old buildings that were burned down and where new buildings now stand. Father time and mother nature haven't been kind to the little metal markers. And there are these little plaques. This here was the Woodard building, destroyed in 1921, never reopened. This was the Bryant building. This one was rebuilt, it says. That sort of mark what happened here. Some of these are coming out of the ground, but that's about it. You remember me telling you about that red brick? Well, one of the storefronts I saw really stood out in all of those walls of red clay. It was made of broken brick pieces that looked like they had survived a fire. And you know, all of a sudden, I started thinking, ah, Here's a building they left as is, like the ones I saw in Berlin. This was left here to remind people of their past. I knock on the glass door and meet Matt King, an architect who has spent his entire life in Tulsa.
6: And you said that this brick is- called clinker brick. Clinker brick, okay. And uh, I don't know if this is historic. Of course, this building was built in 1923 or shortly after the race Mm riot. And I don't know if this brick was captured from that or not. Yeah. If you look at the burn marks on here, it's almost like it's it's uh, lava mm-hmm. rock. Mm-hmm. And people tend to believe that that was a byproduct of the race riot 1921.
3: It makes for a good story.
6: It does least. make it for a good story. And it may be true. Right. I just don't know. I don't know the history of that.
3: You're from here. I am. You were born here, you said? I was born here. He tells me something I've heard over and over and over and over again, especially from white residents like Matt. He's 60 years old, but says he didn't learn of the massacre until he was 40.
6: Um, I had no idea.
3: Why is that? How did that happen, in your opinion?
6: Well, I don't know. I went to Booker T. Washington High School, which was a predominantly black high school that integrated in the early 70s. And it was not even taught at the uh, high school level, at a predominantly black, historically black high school. So I, I can't explain why it didn't make it into the history books. Um, I suspect it had a lot to do with race. You know, a lot of the black culture and black history was you know, swept under the rug. And uh, I'm glad it's coming out. I'm glad people in the country are starting to recognize it. Um, I don't know why the black community here did not uh, make that happen much sooner. Maybe they've been trying, it's just nobody was listening. Yeah. Uh, you know, being white, obviously, uh, you, you have a different perspective on it.
3: You know, it's a big part of the history here that is hard to digest. How is it possible that people in Tulsa never talked about this? And let's focus for a second on the white people. They ran and frankly continue to run the institutions. Folks like G.T. Bynum, the current mayor of Tulsa.
9: I had gone through the state required Oklahoma history class, Uh, grew up learning about the history of Tulsa, talking with people who were involved in the history of Tulsa, um, spent a lot of time at the Tulsa Historical Society as a kid and had never heard about it.
3: Again, this is the city's mayor. His family has lived here since the 1870s.
9: If something that crazy had happened in Tulsa, I would have heard about it. And then I went home and went to my two main sources of authority on the history of Tulsa, my grandfathers, uh, and asked them about it, and they both said, yeah, it, it happened. He
3: says that for the white people of Tulsa, keeping the massacre a secret was usually more about shame than bigotry.
9: And everything that I've learned about it since is that that was no accident. It was entirely deliberate. The recurring theme that you see in that is shame and embarrassment. And he
3: says there was a feeling here that admitting to the past wasn't a good look for the city.
9: When you have a a disaster, which this was, uh, you have two options. And we face this in dealing with natural disasters or pandemics. The government can choose to either restrict information and try and control uh, what people hear in the hopes of calming everyone down and moving on. Or the government can provide all of the information and be open and transparent about it and trust that the citizens can work through these issues on their own. And clearly Tulsa in 1921 took the former choice when it should have gone with the latter. Putting
3: it plainly, it was a culture of silence. And it wasn't just the government that played a part. And by the way, remember Scott Ellsworth, the African-American studies professor from the University of Michigan? Well, he's white. And he says that no one really tried that hard to properly document the massacre in official records.
7: The riot was something that white Tulsans eventually became very ashamed of. And it was a dark part of their past that they wanted to bury. And by golly, they did a really good job. Um, Lots of official records disappeared.
3: Ellsworth says it wasn't easy for him to look into the massacre. As a young researcher, He says it was hard getting the truth from witnesses who were still alive.
7: There were a lot of people who wouldn't talk to me. people were nervous. They didn't know who I was. And
3: And when he went to search through city archives, he saw that there were pages
7: missing. Lots of records have disappeared. Um, The original maps and logbooks are gone. There are just lots of things, National Guard reports, day reports that should be there. They're missing and gone.
3: Probably Even records of the newspapers had missing pieces.
7: There was also an editorial uh, on the editorial page that was titled, To Lynch Negro Tonight. And uh, when those volumes of the Tulsa Tribune bound volumes were microfilmed in the 1930s, someone had already cut out the front page article and then torn out the editorial page. We know what the front page story said, but to this day, we don't. we don't have a copy of the editorial.
3: If what happened here was a culture of silence, then it has to be said that Black Tulsons helped white people keep the century-old massacre a secret. But
7: why? The irony was that the, that the story of the massacre was suppressed in the African-American community as well. This was a memory they didn't want to burden their children with. This was something they didn't want to talk about. So you had, you know, an entire generation of Black Tulsans who learned very little about it as well.
3: The Black families had entirely different reasons for their silence.
4: My Aunt Janie Edwards was in the Dreamland Theater when the massacre happened. So we would hear the stories, but then I
3: still- Christy Williams isn't just the great-granddaughter of survivors. She's also chair of the Greater Tulsa African-American Affairs Commission.
4: You know, why they were told to be quiet about it was because you still had to live and work with these people who burnt down your homes, right? Um, Who did this horrible act. You worked with them every day. So you was just quiet about it and you uh, didn't want to stir up the white folks, you know, is what they call it.
3: Today, she is definitely stirring up the white folks. She's part of a group of mostly black activists asking questions about their history and demanding answers from city officials. One of her biggest concerns, the dead. Too much time has passed and she and others are trying to learn just where those evil people of yesteryear buried all those black victims.
1: The search for the truth begins as archaeologists start digging for answers.
0: We did get to a point where we encountered um, an interesting discovery. So we had this pair of shoes that seemed to have been laid on that surface. That was quite different than what we were seeing elsewhere again.
1: A simmering debate begins to boil over as Tulsons ask themselves, should the people of today pay for crimes from the past?
3: Do you support direct payments to these families? I do, personally.
1: And Greenwood is again at the center of rising racial tensions in the next episode of Tulsa's Buried
3: Truth. Tulsa's Buried Truth is a production of ABC Audio and the ABC News investigative unit. Written by me, Steve Osinsabi. Reported by investigative producers Tanya Simpson and Jenny Wagnon-Kortz. Produced by Susie Liu and Alexandra Myers. Music and mixing by Evan Viola, our executive producers are Cindy Galley, Eric Johnson, and Liz Alessi. Special thanks to Sonny Hostin, Stacia Dushishku, Josh Kohan, Jin Sol Jung, Michael Kreisel, and Rachel Katz. Audio histories provided by the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum and Kevin Ross. Some sound effects were used to recreate historical scenes. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you think with a rating and a review.